This morning, we're going to think together about a subject that uh, we don't talk about too often, namely Judgment Day. And we talk about it because Jesus talked about it. Actually, it's a subject that uh, we'd prefer to ignore, but we ignore it at our peril because there's lessons here. And it's not really a, a sad subject. It shouldn't be foreboding. It, 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 it's all about joy and an adventure, about getting life on the right track, about taking advantage of what Jesus told us about the future so we're not caught in ignorance. Jesus often talked about that time when you and I are going to stand before God and give an account to him of our lives here on earth. What is interesting about today's text, and a first for me in preaching, is that we look at his agenda. And I normally think of Judgment Day as a time when I'm going to come before God and give an answer for all those times I disobeyed the Ten Commandments, did the moral sins, and yet as a Christian also believe that the blood of Jesus cleanses me from that. But here now Jesus opens a whole new page about Judgment Day. Instead of dealing with things that we did and shouldn't have done, Jesus is talking about those things we didn't do and should have done, namely sins of omission. Preceding this text in uh, Matthew, uh, Jesus talks about the man with one talent, you remember, who buried his talent in the ground rather than investing it in God's work. Or the rich man who failed to give to the needs of Lazarus, begging on his doorstep. Or the rich fool, as Jesus called him, whose response to increased wealth was to build bigger barns rather than share. That preceded, all those stories preceded what Jesus is saying today about sins of omission. And there's some valuable lessons for us to consider, particularly us in Silicon Valley. First, Jesus defines sins of omission as ignoring people in need. I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. That's an important subject for us to think about. But today, I I, I even want to turn the page another dimension. I want us to think of the needy not only as the economically poor, which we as a church think about often and we're doing much throughout the world about it. Because there's another group of needy people that we tend to ignore. We interface with them every day. The people we work with in our neighborhoods in this affluent area are also hungry and thirsty and in various kinds of prisons. The Wall Street Journal did an article on Silicon Valley last week entitled Silicon Valley Shrinks Are Fixing Lots of Bugs. Kind of a cute title. The article spoke about local psychiatrists treating patients with all kinds of needs. Addiction to the frantic pace and stress of working 16 hours a day and in the process losing the building blocks of family and community. People trading relationships for wealth and paying an enormous price. People captured by the seduction of wealth followed by self-destructive behavior. Here's just a few little capsules from that article. One patient said, people pay a huge price to become an executive or take a company public. But when you get there, the pressure never lets up. Another patient told about her 10-year-old daughter who has a personal soccer coach at $40 an hour because everyone else on her team has a personal soccer coach. She also has a little body fat. The mother's considering putting her on a diet so she can play at her best. Another patient said, I gave up seeing my children for 15 years. Now I hear them say, you were never there. And then the article concludes by stating that child psychiatrists have the longest waiting lists of anyone in the valley. 
Folks, we're a needy people. Every day there are people around us in prisons of addiction, hungry for relationships, chronically sick from stress. And you know what? Jesus says not only should we be thinking about people out there who need food and clothes economically poor because we do think about them, but sometimes the hardest neighbor to see are those around us every day who have no obvious needs, who mask it with their wealth, but inside they're dying. So Jesus would have us consider adopting a lifestyle that enables us to recognize and relate to the needs of our neighbor, to those closest to us. The greatest need in the lives of most of our neighbors, obviously, is not material. You know what they need? They need Jesus. That sounds pretty simplistic. And most of them will never, never find Jesus. Unless, first of all, those of us who take the name Christian somehow relate to them, not with God talk and lapel pulling, asking them if they're saved, but in that impersonal or increasingly isolated world out there, we take an interest. We listen to them. We take a moment to get beyond the facade of how are you, and we begin to feel their heartbeat. We get into their lives, and then through friendship, we begin to share the resources we have in Jesus Christ with them. And then maybe one day they'll start asking, well, where do you come from? How do you have what I need, and that might lead us to give them the thing they need most in addition to all the material stuff they have. They need Jesus. I believe that's one other dimension of what Jesus could mean in this text about ignoring the hungry and those in prison and the naked and the suffering around us. The hardest people to reach, Jesus said, are the rich, not the poor. The warning in this text is that Judgment Day is not only about sins related to the commandments then, but you know it's about the little acts of caring that we did or failed to do. And that's the stuff we evangelicals historically have not picked up on. We've kind of written off this part of the gospel saying that's social gospel. That really doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. That's humanism. Not according to Jesus. We neglect this text at our peril. Our Lord's biggest bombshell hit me in preparing this sermon when he said to ignore my neighbor is to ignore him. That's pretty stunning. When Mother Teresa was asked what motivated her to love and care for the sick and dying and rejected in Calcutta, remember what she said? When I look at the face of a needy person, I always see the face of Jesus. I wonder if we're able to see the face of Jesus in the needy people that we are surrounded with every week because I think that's pretty well masked by supposedly their material well-being. And we really have to have a heart that only Jesus can give us to get past that into where they're really living and feeling things so that we might see them as much in need as some beggar in Calcutta because actually we're both there and we have the answer in Jesus Christ. And when we care for our neighbor, we're caring for Jesus. When we neglect our neighbor, we're neglecting him. I think one of the surprises about Judgment Day and the surprise in this text is simply will be those who thought they knew Jesus but lacking compassionate hearts will hear him say, I don't know you. And I can't think of anything more terrifying than that. You know, I'm not a preacher who uses fear to motivate us, but Jesus didn't seem to hesitate doing that in this text. I think that's alarming to realize we could live a lifetime And if we lack his compassion at heart, it might mean we don't know him. I I want to pursue that in a second truth here. Gratitude to Jesus 
is the motivation for reaching out to our neighbor. And I might add an addendum to that. Gratitude is one sign we know him. You see, once we understand that every blessing we enjoy is not an achievement, not something we deserve, but a gift of God's grace, gratitude then becomes the dominating force in our lives. And it's gratitude that motivates us to take our Savior's love into whatever part of the world that we're, we're placed in. And for us, for most of us, we're here in the Silicon Valley community and we're surrounded by obviously people who on the outside don't appear they have needs, but they have great needs. That's where Jesus has put us and he said that's where we're responsible for taking his love. As one man commented to me as he was helping load the container to Russia, he said, I believe every individual, if motivated, can make a difference in the world. Just look at what a few of us can do. Imagine what our church family could do together if we could just get the vision. You're going to hear from this man next week, but that sort of lit my fire. If you really think about it, a church family that shares our love and our time and our talent and our resources to meet our neighbor's need models God's answer for the selfishness and isolation and barriers that are absolutely sweeping society. We've all been reading in the press about... Uh, the Y2K crisis, I read the latest one. It talked about uh, the potential mayhem coming after January and how some people are frantically gathering all kinds of survival goods and food. But what impressed me, it said they're also collecting guns to protect their treasures. You, you, you see the mindset. A crisis is coming. I'm going to take care of me and mine and I'm going to store it up and I'm going to have a gun to protect it so my neighbor can't have any. That's rather dramatic. But, you know, it's sort of a parable of the kind of world we're living in, the mindset, with self as the primary focus. A sense of community, of belonging is being lost. And, and I simply want us to think for a moment, why does it take a tragedy like that that happened in Colorado to bring us back together as a community, to people see people in the streets, holding hands, hugging each other, praying, coming back together, saying, what have we lost? How did we get so separated? Why does it take a tragedy to pull us together? And it struck me that the challenge of what we can do as a community of faith here in Menlo Park is to be God's emissaries, to do here what God wants to do all over the world, and that's to help us rediscover our, what, what it means to be a human being, to be a community, to take responsibility for each other, to be neighbors. One of my friends was just telling me how a teacher in a lo local high school, not Menlo Atherton, up the, co uh, the, the coast here a little bit, is preparing for what they think is going to be a, a, an attack on the school. And, and you could just kind of run through the fear that's striking our society. And, and the only answer for the kind of fear as well as for focus on self and isolation is Jesus Christ. And his hands and his feet and his lives are us, folks. And what a commission, what an adventure, what a potential if we could be part of God's answer to recreate community and neighborliness and humanness as God originally intended it to be wherever we are, where God has strategically placed us. That's, a, that's an adventure. I mentioned last week we'll be presenting in the days ahead what we're going to call Vision 2000. It's simply a vision of what I believe, we believe, God is calling us as a church to accomplish for Jesus Christ. You know, we're at the very nerve center of the world. I can't think of a church more strategically placed for impact for Christ than us. 
And I don't want us to lose the opportunity. Our ministry right now is extending into the community, into the Bay Area, into the world. But the potential is just beginning. I, I trust, if, if the Lord could light a fire in you, that we're going to have the experience of the book of Acts where literally we'll stand in awe and amazement of what happens when we as a group of people pull all the stops, employ our resources together for Christ, and then watch him work as we invest our resources to touch the world for Christ in these needy, needy times. And, you know, if we can vision it, we can do it, or God can do it through us. A third truth here that have to, has to be emphasized, there are consequences for those whose hearts are hardened and indifferent to human need. I'm fascinated by the excuse those in our story gave for not relating to human need. Well, if we had known it was you, Lord, we would have served you. I need to say that part of the responsibility of coming to worship today is you can never say that to the Lord. It won't float, because we have heard. As your leaders, we have at least a threefold responsibility to you. To introduce you first, as a first item, to introduce you to Jesus Christ. That's most, most important. Secondly, to nurture you, you into maturity as disciples. And then thirdly, to deploy you into the world to meet the needs of people. And I think our church is in the deployment stage, and that's the toughest of all because most of us love the status quo. We're most naturally focused on self, and Jesus is pushing us beyond self to the adventure of serving as he served. Like any other personal growth, it's painful. I have two wonderful granddaughters. Uh, they're one year old, approximately. And you know, at this stage, they're totally focused on self. And so is uh, mom and dad and grandma and grandpa. We're just focused on indulging them. They cry, they whine, and they get something like that. And that's the most normal, wonderful thing in the world most of the time. Can you think of anything more pathetic than an adult with a chronological age of 20 years old and a mental age of one, where they're still whining around in life about me and mine and collecting their toys and living as if nobody else exists in the world because their focus is on them? Can you think of anything more pathetic than a church 125 years old with a mental age of one saying we're only concerned about us and our comfort and our worship services and us and us and us? And can you think of anything more exciting than an individual and a church graduating to realizing that real adventure begins not with a focus on self, but a focus on growing up as an adult in Jesus Christ and being concerned about others? You see, the judgment is built in. There is nothing, it's a hell on earth to be in the prison of self, either as an individual or as a church. Let me, um, let me, let me highlight this to, to maybe illustrate what I'm talking about. I need to say this message of what I'm saying this morning will make sense only to someone who knows Jesus as Savior. And I don't mean to be exclusive, but I need to tell you, the world out there probably doesn't understand what we're saying too much. Uh, last summer, two guards in our nation's Capitol building, if you remember, gave their lives to save uh, the bullets from a crazed gunman that were meant, to some, uh, meant for somebody else, and they put their body in front of those people. One of the assistants whose life was saved by a guard by putting his body in front of a bullet meant right for her said, I will live the rest of my life indebted to this man and make certain he didn't die in vain. Jesus put his body in front of the bullet of God's judgment and eternal death that will fall upon those who reject 
Jesus as Savior, remain indifferent to his call to get beyond self, who put their fists in the face of God and say, I don't want any part of this. Once we become a Christian, you see, our whole perspective and motivation in life is changed. Now we're filled with gratitude. We look at this table. We realize what Jesus did for us. He took the bullet. And now, not to earn it, but because we can't help ourselves, we have to make a difference in the world by caring for others as our response to say, Jesus, you didn't die in vain. Thank you. I want to now use my life to continue your work of caring for others. And what Jesus is saying in this text is if our eyes are closed to this dynamic, if human pain doesn't get to us where we feel things, it simply means we don't know him. And the tragedy is then he doesn't know us. And I would be shortchanging the gospel if we didn't hold up that potential. And that's what makes this scripture of such eternal importance. This isn't just a new chapter for our church. This is the very heartbeat of everything Jesus died to accomplish. And he tells us that Judgment Day is going to be full of surprises because in heaven, head tunas in this world are not going to lead the parade. Heroes in heaven will be those most surprised because their only claim to fame is that they needed a Savior and they found one and their response was to reach out and use their lives to love and care for others. That's the only thing they can brag about. And as we think about the future of our church's ministry, I want our life as a family, as a community together to be living proof. We do know Jesus. He didn't die in vain. And to prove it, we're investing our time and our resources and our money to make a difference. And that action will make our Savior smile. You see, a neighbor is simply anyone whose needs we can meet. And I guess one way to respond is this week, go out and find at least one neighbor. Start. Communion on a regular basis was planned by Jesus for one very specific reason, to remind us of what he did, to motivate us to gratitude so we won't forget and we won't allow him to have died in vain. And I want us to think as we do communion together again today, of that hymn, I gave, I gave my life for you. What have you given for me? A Christian can understand that. And what did he give? Paul the Apostle said, I delivered unto you as of first importance what I also received, how the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. That's what he did for us. And after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink ye all of it. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you do show forth. And I would say today, we express gratitude for his death until he comes. And may these symbols of him in us energize us to live a life of gratitude of serving others. Would you bow in prayer with me? Lord, we aren't naturally going to move beyond self to others. We need a supernatural push. And I pray your Holy Spirit's going to help us take another step in that direction today. Even as we join you around this table, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to hold the bread and we're going to eat it together. <laughs>